Sound Minds Radio, getting you behind the research and ideas in contemporary life. This episode produced by Michael Schubert. Sound Minds Radio, part of the Community Radio Network. Soundminds.com.au Welcome to the Sound Minds 5-Minute Research Pitch 2017 Finals Presentations. The 5-Minute Research Pitch is a competition for academics to present their research in five minutes. That's it. They can use three slides and there are no more rules. Researchers from seven universities competed this year within their university in two categories, science and health and arts, humanities and social sciences. The winner in each category heads off to the finals. This year, the competition was hosted by Central Queensland University because one of their researchers, Dr. Melanie Heyman, was the 2016 overall winner. You can hear more from Melanie in the Sound Minds episode, Fit for Two, where she discusses her innovative and entrepreneurial research about fitness during pregnancy. The competition was held at the Central Queensland University campus in Melbourne, hosting the competitors from seven universities, Central Queensland, the Australian Catholic University, Charles Sturt, Southern Cross, Southern Queensland, Tasmania, and Victoria University. Now, it takes more than knowledge about your research. It takes preparation and precision. And if you go over five minutes, you're disqualified. And if the slides don't work, you're on your own. If you tell a joke and it falls flat, it's all on you. Competitors take it seriously. Communication is important. Academic careers are all about research, but also about communicating to your peers, to your students, informing the public, and you never know when you may need to communicate to a potential funding body. Succinct communication skills are essential. In this episode, we feature two academics from the Australian Catholic University, Dr. Simone Dorsch, from the School of Physiotherapy, whose research explores the possibility of being stronger after stroke, and Dr. Taryn Sanders from the Institute for Positive Psychology and Education, who presents Square Eyes Are All Lies, Understanding Children's Exposure to Screens. Dr. Simone Dorsch is a lecturer in Neurological Physiotherapy and Clinical Specialist in Rehabilitation at Bankstown Lidcombe Hospital. Her PhD topic, Increasing Strength After Stroke, included a systematic review of interventions with the potential to increase strength after stroke. She is currently involved in research projects investigating the relationships between walking ability and physical activity after stroke, and the relationships between changes in impairments and activity after stroke. She regularly teaches workshops on stroke rehabilitation nationally and internationally. Stroke is the leading cause of disability in adults in the Western world. The impairments that cause the disability after stroke are mostly the loss of strength and the loss of coordination. Loss of strength means that you can't produce sufficient force with your muscles to do a task. Loss of coordination means that you can't produce that force at enough speed 
or in conjunction with the other muscles that need to work together to perform a task such as standing or walking, using your arm to pick up an object. Of these two impairments, it's loss of strength that has the most significant correlations with loss of function after stroke, and I'll show you why. This man, Vinko, has had a stroke affecting his right side. We see him here trying to stand, and you see his right leg collapses because of the loss of strength in that leg. Here, we see him trying to walk, and his right leg collapses. Imagine how terrifying that would be. So for Vinko, you can see that unless he gets significantly stronger, he's not going to stand or walk again. Surprisingly, there's not a lot of information about the extent of loss of strength after stroke. So in my first study, I measured the strength of the leg muscles of 60 stroke survivors and 35 age-matched controls. And this is the results from that study. The 100% line here represents the strength in the leg muscles of the age-matched controls. The blue bars represent the strength of the affected leg of the stroke survivors. So you can see that they have a very significant loss of strength in all of their leg muscles, that it sits somewhere between 30 to 60% of the strength of the age-matched controls. What do we do to make muscles stronger? Our best proven method for increasing strength is progressive resistance training. In progressive resistance training, you lift a load that you can only lift 10 times. So it's called your 10 repetition maximum. You literally cannot lift that load an 11th time. You do at least two sets of that, at least twice a week, and you get stronger. So does this work well for people who've had a stroke? My next study was a systematic review. In this systematic review, I looked at studies in which people with stroke had done progressive resistance training. This is the results for the effect of progressive resistance training on strength after stroke. Each line here represents one of those studies. What we're interested in is that black diamond there. The black diamond represents the pooled results of all of those studies. And what this tells us is that there's an effect size of almost one, which is a large effect size. We can say definitively that there is a large effect of progressive resistance training on strength after stroke. In real terms, it actually represented an increase on average of 50% of the strength of the muscles that were trained. What happens though about function? Quite a different story here. This diamond crosses the zero line which means that a potential outcome is that the control group who didn't do the progressive resistance training are doing just as well as the experimental group that did the progressive resistance training. So why does this large increase in strength not have a carryover to improvements in function? Let's have a look at INCO again. Yeah, you can see, oh, hopefully he's going to walk. He's walking and he's much, he's much better but you can see that there's still quite significant problems with his walking. You can see that his right leg needs to be stronger, but if we only address his strength, we're not going to make significant changes to his walking, it would appear. And you can probably see that he needs to be able to switch on his muscles faster and in, with a smoother movement pattern. 
Often after stroke, people train strength or coordination in isolation. My future research will look at finding the best combinations for training, for training strength and coordination together to achieve the best outcomes for Vinco and other stroke survivors. Our second presentation today is by Dr. Taryn Sanders, whose current research interests focus on the physical activity of children and young people in particular. Taryn is looking to understand what determines physical activity behaviour, the health and well-being benefits of physical activity participation, and how measurements of physical activity can be improved. In this talk, he examines the myths and realities about children and screen time. Listen to his talk. Square Eyes or All Lies, Children's Exposure to Screens. Okay. So in the 16th century, a new technology was developed that threatened to overwhelm and confuse people with new information. Uh, scholars asked kings and princes to ban this new technology, and one uh, scientist predicted that it would lead to the fall of the Roman Empire. That technology was the printing press and the widespread availability of books that came with it. Now this new uh, idea, this idea of new technology leading to problems of information overload, we've seen all through history. In the 18th century, people worried about newspapers and being removed from the social experience of getting news. In the 19th century, people worried about schools. They, taught, they said that uh, schools would confuse and overwhelm children and excessive study was a well-accepted cause of madness in the medical community. In the late 19th century, it was the radio that people were concerned about. In fact, the thing that they worried about with the radio was that it would distract kids from their reading and their schooling, which we now apparently decided not to Today, those same arguments that have been leveled against those old technologies are now leveled against children's screen time. So that's their television, their smartphones, their video games. You probably heard a lot of media attention around these claims because the media loves these stories. They love to tell us that it rots children's brains, destroys their attention spans, tells them that they can't develop social skills. And it's no real surprise then that with all of this, so, this um, media, that it's led to um, excessive screen time being the number one health concern parents have for their children's uh, health. And it beat out things like obesity, <coughs> physical inactivity, and even bullying. More concerning to parents than bullying. But with all this hysteria around screen time, it's really hard to know what's fact and what's fiction. So our research is a systematic untangling of this screen time problem. To start, we're doing two very large systematic reviews to understand the current state of the literature. The first looks at the correlates and determinants of children's screen time. So that's anything that predicts why a child would engage with a screen. As you can imagine, with a question that broad, we've identified a lot of articles, but we're making good progress there. The other end of the scale is the outcomes. Now what we saw when we started looking at the literature there is that the um, outcomes already have lots of systematic reviews, but they're built up in silos. The health people are interested in the health outcomes, the education people are interested in how they can use technology in classrooms. But nobody's looking at this on a balanced playing field. They're looking at things in isolation. That's why we're doing a systematic review of systematic reviews to weigh the risks and benefits of engaging in screen time, right? Um, and we're making really good progress there too. Even though we're in early stages of both of those systematic reviews, we're already seeing a trend. And the trend is that it's not just our lack of knowledge, 
about the correlates and the outcomes of screen time. Our problem with screen time research is that we don't understand screen time. And the problem there is that we've relied on self-report data. So this is data that's mostly come from parents, sometimes from the child, by answering a questionnaire. To give you an example of why this is a problem, in the physical activity field, if you ask kids how much physical activity they get, 75% meet physical activity guidelines. If you measure it objectively, it's 5%. It's a pretty big difference. The other problem with the screen time measures that we have at the moment is they lack nuance, right? So that's telling us about the type, the content, and the context. Just to give you an example, it's a little bit hard to believe that a video call with grandma has the same psychological effect as, let's say, playing a gambling video game. So this is why we need better measures in order to understand what's really going on with children's screen time. So that's why we've started two um, grant applications to try and answer these questions. The first is all about improving the quality of the evidence. We're doing a longitudinal developmental study, so on children's developmental outcomes. But what's important here is that we're measuring those outcomes objectively. And we're doing that using wearable cameras that capture a still image every 15 seconds. And then we teach a learning algorithm, a computer algorithm, to identify the images that contain screens so that we can code those um, images for content, context, and type. Now that sounds outlandish, but a study in New Zealand recently used cameras in a sample of children to identify their exposure to advertising, and they showed that they could do that in an ethical way that maintained children's autonomy. Bit of a spoiler alert on that paper, children see a lot of advertising. Once we know what form of screen time is harmful, we can then start to develop interventions to help parents treat this problem. So to do this, we'll engage with parents early to make sure that we get their opinion on what sort of intervention would be effective. We'll develop it using the MRC guidelines for complex interventions. We'll evaluate it using our new objective measure. And importantly, we'll engage with members of the government to make sure that they can scale this intervention so that we can help parents cut through the hysteria around screen time. Thanks for listening to Soundvines Radio, the project that aims to explore the thinking behind the ideas in contemporary life, creating stories about research in the words of the researcher. Visit our website and please contact us with ideas, critique, and suggestions for researchers to interview. You've been listening to another episode from Soundvines Radio, produced for the Community Radio Network. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or visit our website, soundminds.com.au.